This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jenny. Hi, I'm Tamahome. And we're going to talk new releases and recent arrivals. What has new, n- newly arrived and recently released, Jenny? So much. <laughs> uh, well, we're starting with a category I have labeled contemporary fantasy, urban fantasy, and magic. Or magics, in this magics. case. I like magics. <laughs> there are many magics. And then you spell some of them with M A J I C K S. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, the first one on the list I'll just mention in passing, but one of our reviewers loves this series, so even though it's in the middle of the series, I'll mention it. Um, It's from the Magic 2.0 series by Scott Meyer, and it is An Unwelcome Quest, and it's read by Luke Daniels from Brilliance Audio. Um, He's been having a lot of fun with that one. It's like a computer geek slash magic kind of series. (laughs) That sounds all right. I assume we've got some reviews up for the earlier ones in the series. We do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, have they got a linking uh, sort of title theme? Like, you know, an unwelcome quest, an early quest, a uh, sleepy quest? Or is it you just have to look through I think the, the magic first one might. I can't remember what the titles are. No, they don't all have the word quest in them. Okay. They're usually kind of a, a play on words. Yeah. All right, I'm going to look those up because uh, I I've sort of stopped reading our reviews for some reason. I guess I'm I'm busy making content rather than uh, lo- looking at the content. Um, Finn, Finn Fancy Necromancy. That there's another one playing on the role words by Randy Henderson, read by Todd. Habercorn, not familiar with that narrator, um, just came out uh, in February. It's a Writers of the Future Grand Prize winner, uh, presenting a dark and quirky debut. And it says, Finn Graymare was framed for the crime of dark necromancy at the age of 15 and exiled to the other realm for 25 years. But now he's free. Someone, probably the same someone, is trying to get him back, sent back. Finn has only a few days to discover who is so desperate to keep him out of the mortal world and find evidence to prove it it to the arcane enforcers. They are going to be very hard to convince, since he's already been convicted of trying to kill someone with dark magic. But Finn has his family, his brother Mort, who's running the family necrotorium business now, his brother Pete, who believes he's a werewolf, though he's not, and his sister Samantha, who is, unfortunately, allergic to magic. And he's got Zeke, a fellow exile of the, for- <laughs> the former enforcer, who doesn't really believe in Finn's innocence, but is willing to allow uh, follow along in the hopes of getting his old job back. I, I love that <laughs> there's a brother who d- thinks he's a werewolf, but isn't. <laughs> I, I'm turning. I'm turning. No, no, you're not. You're just having a <laughs> reaction to the peanuts. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, the Mermaid Sister. Who wants to read that one? I'll read this one. This one sounds kind of different, and 
Um, I've been trying more to include the YA titles since there's such great stuff coming out, especially mm-hmm. in fantasy. Um, so this one's by Carrie Ann Noble, which is an author I don't know, although she did win an award for this, one of the Amazon Breakthrough Novel Awards. Um, so that's probably why it's probably her first novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says it's for grades seven to nine. It's read by Kate Rudd. So here's the description. There's no cure for being who you truly are. In a cotton, in a cottage high atop Landfair Mountain, 16-year-old Clara lives with her sister Marin and guardian Auntie. By day, they gather herbs for Auntie's healing potions. By night, Auntie spins tales of fairway lands, faraway lands, and wicked fairies. Clara's favorite story tells of three orphan infants, Clara, who was brought to Auntie by a stork, Marin, who arrived in a seashell, and their best friend, O'Neill, who was found beneath an apple tree. One day, Clara discovers shimmering scales just beneath her sister's skin. She realizes that Marin is becoming a mermaid and knows that no mermaid can survive on land. Desperate to save her, Clara and O'Neill place the mermaid girl in their gypsy wagon and set out for the sea. But no road is straight, and the trio encounters trouble around every bend. Ensnared by an evil troop of traveling performers, Clara and O'Neill must find a way to save themselves and the ever-weakening mermaid. And always, in the back of her mind, Clara wonders, if my sister is a mermaid, then what am I? That sounds pretty good. Yeah. Mermaids seem to be one of the new kind of trendy things, but that's okay. Mermaids and angels. You, you know, it's too well yeah, H.G. <laughs> Wells wrote a, a mermaid novel. Really? And yeah, I know. It's, it doesn't sound like something he would do, does it? Huh. It's called The Sea Lady. <laughs> Funny. And it's it's very it's sort of a Victorian uh, problem story because there's this lady who is a mermaid and she's integrating her into this rigid class structure of uh, of English society is is the problem of the, of the novel. Huh. Pretty funny. Yeah, sounds good. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, Tam, I think you're up, but uh, I know Oliver Wyman a little bit, so I, I'm obviously excluded from uh, from talking about it. <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> Whatever. Do you want to read this one, Tam? Monster Hunter Nemesis. Okay. Um, Hell hath no fury like an indestructible monster betrayed. That's true. Uh, wait, how long is this? The novel? Uh, the description. Or the the description. (laughs) It's pretty long, but, uh, you can stop about a third of the way through, I would guess. Uh, Agent Franks of the U.S. Monster Control Bureau is a man of many parts. Parts from other people, that is. (laughs) Ha ha. Franks is nearly seven feet tall and all muscle. He's nearly indestructible. Plus, he's animated by a powerful alcohol chemical substance inhabited by a super intelligent spirit more ancient than humanity itself. Good thing he's on our side, more or less. Sworn to serve and protect the United States of America from all monsters by one of the country's founding fathers. Franks has only one condition to the agreement. No matter what the government learns of him, no matter what is discovered concerning his odd physiology or the alchemy behind the elixir that made him, the government is never, ever allowed to try and make more like him. Such is absolutely forbidden, and should the powers that be do so, then the agreement is null and void. Project Nemesis. In a secret location using sophisticated technology and advanced genetic engineering, the director of the very agency Franks worked for is making more like him. Oh, that's against the rules. 
Yep. And the director is not content with making one. Nope, he's making 13. Now all bets are off, and he'll have no fury like a monster betrayed. Particularly if that monster happens to be an undying killing machine capable of taking out vampires and werewolves with one hand tied behind his back. That sounds pretty hilarious. Um, <laughs> does I like I, the reason I think it'll be hilarious is because Oliver Wyman is he, he, he I like I lo- really love the way he reads and he, I think he'll have a lot of fun chewing up the scenery in this, okay. this story with an angry Frankenstein sort of monster. <laughs> Yeah, it could be fun. I don't know. Yeah, I was I was trying to figure out where Larry Korea's name is familiar from. He must be on uh, his stories must be on podcasts that I listen to because it sounds really familiar. But I well, don't. He, he does that sad puppy uh, movement where they where they try to take over the Hugos and okay. they, they kind of band people together and vote for certain things. Huh. I I didn't hear about that. Okay. It's interesting. So I'll just kind of run through the next few since they're in the middle of the series. Sure. Is that all right? Yeah. Um, Unseen, which is Unborn number two by Amberlynn Natish. And I just want to read the first sentence because it's funny. Welcome to the kingdom of Hades, where even its prodigal princess sleeps lightly after fighting soul stealers in Detroit. So, yeah, some kind of underworld (laughs) in Detroit. (laughs) Like, what? Princess Detroit. Not That's not good. You know what? (laughs) We should we should do that for every one of these. Just read the first sentence because I think that that makes it, <laughs> it sort of whets the appetite, but also says that's really just enough to give you the taste of what it'd be about. Yeah, because I know we've talked about a lot of these series. Yeah, and it'll be so. funny. Yeah, claimed, okay, so. claimed servant of fate by Sarah Fine, uh, read by Emily uh, Foster. And here's the first sentence. Galena Margolis, a brilliant scientist with a tragic past, is determined to fulfill her destiny and develop the vaccine that could save millions. And if you want to find out more about that one, go check out Claimed, Servants of Fate number two. <laughs> Tam, you're up. Hellbender. Um, I day is near at hand, and soon the fangborn will reveal themselves to humankind. That's, That's Hellbender number Fang, three. Yeah. By Dana uh, by. Cameron. Read by Kate Red. Hey. Lots of Kate Red on this list. Yeah. <laughs> Is she related okay, to Paul so. Red? The actor? I'm sure. Okay. I have no idea. We're all related to each other, Tam. <laughs> uh the syndrome the syndrome, the Kingdom Keepers collection. So this is uh, multiple readers. I guess it's a Kate Radigan. Yeah, oh, right, Kate Radigan. There you go. Yeah, it's uh, a collection of novellas that uh-huh. from the Kingdom Keepers series, I guess. So for people who are fans of the series, clearly, and this is like juvenile fiction, which probably yeah, explains why I've never heard of it. <laughs> uh, the description says. A collection of Kingdom Keepers novellas perfect for fans of the series. When Amanda travels east to Orlando on a hunch, she's met with the worst news possible. Kingdom Keeper Finn Widom is missing. Calling on her own gift, she's telekinetic, her sister Jess's ability to dream the future, and their fellow Fairline Matty Weaver's unexplained ability to read minds through physical contact, the three gifted girls 
We must navigate treachery, deception, and stubborn, unwilling parents <laughs> of the missing keepers if they're to save their friends. Yes, those pesky parents. In grade four to six, that's those are the serious monsters to, to defeat is the pesky parents. Uh, Jenny, you want to do the description of the uh, the title and the one line description of alternate history title? Yeah, we have one book that falls under alternate alternative history. I guess alternate history. Um, you know, we always get a long list from recorded books every year, but they don't have a lot of titles that are related. Mm. Um, so I always try to pull out even the tangential ones, but this is in the middle of a long, what looks like a long series. It's 1636 Commander Cantrell in the West Indies by Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon narrated by George Goodall. So the first sentence, Eddie Cantrell now married to the King of Denmark's daughter is sent by Admiral Simpson to the Caribbean to secure access to the most valuable commodity on the continent, not the gold and silver, which the Spanish treasure but the, uh, which the Spanish treasure, but the oil, which uptime, mach- which uptime machines and industry need. Which, yeah, this is long totally sense. It is really long sense. Sense. <laughs> and it's 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 uh it's one of those ones where you know a bunch of soldiers go back in time and uh, start living their lives in that world and continue to do so for 15 books. So it's, it's well into, if you read more, it's, it's, it's like, yeah, we're going to Ireland. We got to get the oil field and blah, blah, blah. So if you know the series, you'll probably want to start at the, uh, you'll probably like it, but start at the beginning. Otherwise I, I read one of them and I didn't know it was in, I thought it was, I thought it was the, not the first in a series because they're not always that clearly marked. Um, and it was definitely the case that you need to start at the beginning. Hmm. All right. Um, mountain, this is in the virtual reality cyberpunk section. Mountain of Black Glass, Otherland series book three by Tad Williams, read by George Newbern. And here's the first sentence. Mountain of Black Glass is the third volume of Tad Tad Williams' highly acclaimed four book series, Otherland. It's not very descriptive. No, it's not. But we're sticking with our rule. Yeah, and the rest of it doesn't help, so. No. That's an older series. That's been out for a while. Yes, but this is the first time it is in audio. And um, Terp Kristen, who reviewed the first two, and those are great reviews if you haven't read them yet, Hmm. uh, she actually tweeted the author to try to find out when the other two would come out. And they were saying 2016, so I'm not sure if they moved it up in the line or what, but here they are. Hmm. What do you know? Yeah, it just came out. Uh, this week. So we got one more to re- read. Who's next? That uh, Pam next or Jenny? Yeah. Uh, sea of Silverlight, Otherland, Book Four. It's thirty-seven hours. Wow. Um, it's also by Tad Williams, read by George Newbern. A group of adventurers searching for a cure for comatose children find themselves trapped in a sequence of virtual worlds the only opponents of a conspiracy of the rich to live forever in a dream. Hmm, that one sounds good. Mm-hmm. Although 37 hours gives me pause. Wow. Yeah, these are chunky books, as, I, as Luke says. Yeah, but it went up by 10 hours over just the one. one <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, military sci-fi, Tam. Oh, I kind of like this category. 
Uh, Gemini Cell by Mike Cole, Shadow Ops number four. I think this one has some romance in it, too. Uh, Michael, we'll, we'll see if it has in the first sentence. Well, it's it's in a pink color, so that looks like romance. Um, Michael continues to blow the military fantasy genre wide open with an all-new epic adventure in the highly acclaimed Shadow Ops universe. Set in the early days of the Great Reawakening, I don't know what that means, when magic first, I guess this is what it means, when magic first <laughs> returns to the world and order begins to unravel. Dot, dot, dot. I guess that's period. Same that's as period. That's the end of the sentence. So weird. <laughs> okay. Uh, next up is a regular one. Uh, the first casualty, Jump Universe number one. I guess it's part of a series, uh, beginning of a series, uh, by Mike Shepard and read by Michael McConaughey. It's different, oh. different like Michael McConaughey. Um, oh. McConaughey, maybe. Okay. Casey's going to review it for us. I was getting excited the- for a second. Uh, well, maybe Michael McConaughey, McConaughey does it in a Michael McConaughey voice. I think you're thinking Matthew. Oh, you're right. Jeez. Damn. (laughs) Okay. Four soldiers, one war. Asteroid miner, Mary Rodrigo, and freighter owner, Matim Abib, are green draftees of the Society of Humanity, forced to fight for Earth, a planet they've never seen. Major Ray Longknife and his lover, senior pilot Rita New, are career soldiers invested with the cause of the Unity Party and its ambitious new president. These four soldiers on opposing sides of the battle are about to discover the true nature of this terrible war, a quest for profit for the high command of both sides. What they will risk is nothing less than their lives, for although truth may be the first casualty of war, it's not going to be the last. Yeah, and we actually have all four books in this series, well, at least four books from them, um, that were all released in brilliance at once. So there's The Price of Peace, They Also Serve, and To Do or Die. I I want want to follow this this technique of just reading the first line of these so that we can see the progress of the story. Right. So uh, The Price of Peace, the first line is, the war is over, the treaty is signed, and all is well in the galaxy. Dot, dot, dot. That's technically three sentences. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you're right. Never mind. <laughs> Go back. The war is over. <laughs> okay. That's all you they get. All serve. First sentence. A war within. And then... The I thought it was over. Look in the series. Yeah. <laughs> is to do or die... And here's the description. From the national best-selling author of Chris Longknife series comes an all-new Jump Universe novel. Period. <laughs> okay. Should delete those non-descriptive sentences next time. Mm-hmm. I wonder what the war is doing in this one. <laughs> you have to read the books to find out. Oh. Target. Who's reading Target? Uh... I don't think. Um, this is the first in a series by Mike Shepard, so it's still Mike Shepard, but this is the Vicky Peterwald series, um, read by Dina or Dinah Perlman. Beauty in the Battlefield. Her Imperial Highness, the Grand Duchess Victoria Maria Theresa Innes Smith Peterwald, <laughs> daughter of wealth and power, was raised to do little except be attractive and marry well. Then everything changed. Her brother, 
Her father's favorite and heir apparent was killed in battle by Lieutenant Chris Longknife. Ooh, he's back. Daughter mm-hmm. of the Peter Wald's longtime enemy. I think it's a she. Vic- oh, Chris Longknife? Okay. I think so. Vicky vowed revenge, but her skill set was more suitable for seduction than assassination, and she failed. Angry and disappointed, her father decided she needed military training and forced her to join the Navy. Now, Ensign Vicky Peterwald is part of a whole new world where use of her ample charms will not lead to advancement. But her father is the emperor, and what he wants, he gets. What he wants is for Vicky to learn to be efficiently ruthless and deadly. Though the lessons are hard learned, Vicky masters them with help from an unexpected source, Chris Longknife. Mm. So... They mentioned Chris Longknife before, and I noticed mm-hmm. that Ray Longknife is in these other books, the mm-hmm. ones we were just talking about. So, is Chris Longknife must be another series that came this before these related, two yeah. series? Yes, I believe but he so. He must tie them all together. Mm-hmm. Huh. I guess if you're a fan of that, that'd be kind of cool. The Longknife family has a long life. Huh. Terrible. Or I those Serrano books by uh, Elizabeth Moon. So a similar idea, you think? Yeah, and it's like a whole family, like all that becomes like a, the, the daughter or the niece or something. Continues mm. the series. Mm. That's cool. All right, Tarnish Knight. That's you, Tam. Okay, Jack Campbell. I, I heard he's good. Uh, oh, this is the Lost Stars number one. But I think uh, all these books are kind of in the same universe that Jack Campbell writes. The New York Times best-selling author. Let's see how long this is. Uh, the syndicate world's government is crumbling. Civil war and rebellion are breaking out in many star systems, despite the syndicate government's brutal attempts to suppress disorder. Midway is one of those star systems, and leaders there must decide whether to remain loyal to the old order or fight for something new. CEO Arthur Dracon has been betrayed. The syndicate government failed to protect its citizens from both the Alliance and the alien enigmas. With a cater of local soldiers under his command, Dracon launches a battle for control of the Midway star system. Assisted by an ally he's unsure he can trust, CEO, a lot of CEOs, Gwen <laughs> Iceni was exiled that he can trust. CEO Gwen Iceni was exiled to Midway because she wasn't ruthless enough in the eyes of her superiors. She's made them regret their assessment by commandeering some of the warships at Midway and attacking the remaining ships still loyal to the Syndicate Empire. Iceni declares independence for the Midway star system on behalf of the people while staying in charge as president, quote-unquote. But while she controls the mobile fleet, she has no choice but to rely on General, general quote, Dracon's ground forces to keep the planet, the peace planet side. If their coup is to succeed, Dracon and Iceni must put their differences aside to prevent the population of Midway from rising up in rebellion against them, to defend Midway against the alien threat of the Enigma race, and to ferret out saboteurs determined to reestablish syndic rule. Okay. Um, I had to go look up the word you were pronouncing. Cadre. Cadre? Cadre, yeah. A cadre is like a group of, I don't know, dudes who are out to push something. Um, and Jenny, it's Enzin. <laughs> you said Enzyme. It's Enzin, I think. I think Picard says en- Ensign. What? What, think, what has a what? I think Picard, Captain Picard says Ensign. Oh. Enzyme Crusher? No, he says Enzin. 
I'm sorry right. I don't know my military lingo. <laughs> it's all right. Um, I just want to point out also that the Shins, um, they call it the Syndic government. Is uh, that this is probably a callback to the CM Cornbluth uh, novel called The Syndic, which uh, I don't know if we did as a yeah I think we did as a podcast, um, which is uh, it's government by cr- cr- sort of criminal gangs, mm-hmm. and so that's sort of what this is uh, you know the CEO, chief executive officer of a you know a corporation is is vying for power with another corporation. So it's, I guess it's the same sort of idea. Um, but it doesn't sound like it's the first in the series, does it? I think, I guess technically it is, but, uh, it's the same. I think it's the same universe as his other series that he writes. This could be, you know, this could be the new way that they do, you know, in comics, the the way they get you to buy new comics is to reboot the series, you know, with numbers. So it's it's not Amazing Spider-Man number eight hundred and twelve, right? It's it's Ultra Spider-Man, and that's number one, right? And then they go for that for a couple of months, and then uh, Fabulous Spider-Man number one, right? So it's the same same stuff, but just with a new title so that we can get back to the number one thing. Uh, keep keep you endlessly starting the series. It's like a because, story within a story. Yeah, well, there's that, but I think it's a, it's a technique rather than get... Because most books don't last 15 books in the series as we were seeing some of them earlier. Um, this technique, I think, allows people to keep selling books... <laughs> Even though I guess not even to jump in, you don't be right? You can jump in. in midway, and so this is why DC Comics, not very long ago, did an entire line reboot, right? The new so 52. all the new, yeah, the new Fifty Two, as they called it, right? The problem with this is if they if once they get up to you know double out of the double digits, they're going to have to redo reboot it again because uh, you know if you're reading Iron Man or that. Fantastic Four, um, in the 1960s, you're probably not reading it still. And so you don't want to jump in at, at issue 400, right? I think it's, it's something to do with that. Time Patrol, Night Stalkers number four by Bob Mayer, read by Eric G. Dove. Here's the first sentence. Hidden deep beneath the Metropolitan Museum of Art is the Time Patrol, a secret agency charged with protecting the world's timeline from the evil forces who wish to alter it. That's a good summary sentence. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And it also doesn't sound like it's in the middle of a series, just based on that one, yeah. even though it is. Yeah, sometimes these series can be like standalone stories. Mm-hmm. So the next one, Heir to the Jedi, Star Wars by Kevin Hearn, read by Mark Thompson from Random House. Our Star Wars reviewer will be reviewing it. <laughs> it's another one between A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. Um, it says it's for the first time ever written entirely from Luke Skywalker's first person point of view. So I'll just read the first sentence because, of course, on oh, you're the right. series. It is. 
Luke Skywalker's game-changing destruction of the Death Star has made him not only a hero of the Rebel Alliance, but a valuable asset in the ongoing battle against the Empire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, next one. That's you, Tam. Oh, uh, King of Thieves by Evan Curry. Not familiar with him or her. Narrated by Todd Habercorn. Um, parentheses, Odyssey 1, Star Rogue. Also, this is a... Uh, wait a minute. What this category is the first of a series. So, so uh, it's the end of the cyberpunk... What is it? A military sci-fi. Oh. Military sci-fi, sci-fi section. Um, Earth survivors face devastating new challenges. Ooh, this is long. In the wake of recovering from an alien conflict. Am I reading the whole thing? Would you like me to take over? All right, I'll, I'll, I'll finish. Uh, okay. and mourning tremendous losses. The once fractious peoples. Did I say that right? of enemy mm-hmm. nations must work together to rebuild their shattered world and prevent the possibility of their attackers return. What they don't know is that a new deadlier enemy, unlike anything they've ever faced will usher in the dawn of another war. Captain Morgan Passer commands the rogue class destroyer. Charged with an interstellar recon mission to detect traces of the rebel repelled enemy while gathering information for the fortification of Earth's defenses. What the expedition finds instead is a deeply disturbing mystery, a discovery that redefines everything they thought they knew about Earth's place in the galaxy and reveals deadly new horrors. In this original story set in the Odyssey One world, former uh-huh. enemies unite for their own survival, and Passer and his intrepid crew seek answers to help them save their people. Instead, they find that the invasion may be over, but the danger is just beginning. So, yeah, this is again, this is a sneak, sneaky way of getting, getting a, this is obviously set in another series, right? In this original story set in the Odyssey One world. Oh. Yeah, and we've mentioned him before, I think. Oh. There we go. So he's still on the map. New category. Epic traditional fantasy. Uh, this one, the first one here, is one I've I've heard about, uh, read about lots on other reviews, uh, review websites because it's an old book. Um, and uh, I will read the description: Black God's Kiss by C. L. Moore, read by Gabrielle Decur. Uh, it's nine and a half hours. And it's produced by Skyboat Media, which is means it's on Downpour and Blackstone. Uh, first published in the pages of Weird Tales in uh, 1934, C.L. Moore's Jarell of Jory is the first significant female sword and sorcery protagonist and one of the most exciting and evocative characters the genre has ever known. Published alongside the seminal works of H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard, this five classic fantasy, the five classic fantasy tales included in this volume easily stand the test of time and often overshadow the storytelling power and emotional impact of stories by Moore's more famous contemporaries. A seminal work from one of the f- fantasies, one of fantasy's most 
important authors, Black God's Kiss is an essential addition to any fantasy library. It's funny because uh, the cover doesn't look... It's uh, pretty fancy. It looks more urban, yeah, <laughs> more, it, more contemporary. It looks very, yeah, it looks very... I, I assume that was commissioned, mm-hmm. um, but the colors are gray. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think I think it's it's a really well-designed cover, although I'm noticing, you know, like, if you actually look at the detail, it's not as good as it looks, <laughs> which doesn't make a lot of sense. But it catches your eye, um, though. It really is evocative. Very mm-hmm. great color choice, and, and even the font and stuff. I, this is why I, I think covers are really important, is you look at them, it sort of tells you something about it. I mean, it, there's no tattoos on this of this character, right? There, but there also isn't a sword, which is funny because it's sort of sword and sorcery. Mm. Looks more sorcery, or if there is a sword, it's it's hidden. So she's um, like Phoenix from the X Men. Mm-hmm. You're right. Yeah. And Seal Moore is a woman, right? She is. Yes. I imagine that's what the abbreviation is for. <laughs> I can't remember uh, Lucille. I think is the L, but I. I hmm. Remember the C. I'll look it up. Um, so next, this is one where the author actually contacted us directly. Um, the Blackfire Concerto by Mike Allen. Uh, it's the first in a series called the Stormlight Symphony, read by Robert G. Davis. About eight hours. The Red Empress is the only home Urzel has known since the day her family was lured aboard and murdered. Victims of a grisly ritual meant to make the elite immortal. Urzel plays her harp for the diners inside this ghoul-infested riverboat, knowing her own death looms, escaping through the music that's all she's had, all that's all she has left of her parents. Her nightmares upended in the space of a day by the arrival of Alyssa, a fellow musician, but so much more. Urzel is swept up in Alyssa's quest to find her ensorcelled sister Leela, a journey across a mutated landscape that leads them to an enemy responsible for the deaths of millions. To stop the slaughter of countless more, the pair has no choice but to draw on the deadly magics that reshaped the world, a power that's as dangerous to its wielders as it is to its foes, that's killing Urzel even as she fights to control it. I so honestly, the- I couldn't tell if this, what period this was set in exactly, because it, it could almost work in present day too, so... Um, are you going to correct my pronunciation again? No, I was just, I love the word ensorcelled. <laughs> Um, I don't know what it means. I'm looking it up. It says enchanted or enchant or fascinate. Huh, I'm ensorcelled by your pronunciation. <laughs> that is, that is, wow. It's got a sharp rise if you look at the, uh, I love that detail on, on Google when you look up a word. It shows you the mentioning over time as, have you guys seen this? Uh-uh. Oh, kind of like I love what it. OED does. Yeah, but because Google did those book scanning things, right? They've they've done what the OED does, but sort of as a, a digital version rather than just. Uh, I don't think so. The OED just says whether it's archaic or not, right? No, it traces like the first mentions. Yeah, it does the first mentions of a word. Yeah. But then it doesn't show like like here. There's a graph, and it shows right, you know yeah. nobody mentioning this word, and then. About 1870. Oh, there's a little bit. And then huge spike in the 1920s. Hmm. And then, then a steady increase, which is interesting. Uh, I, I just love watching how words get used or not words. 
Right. Of course, there are more books published now than there ever were. So even if that's a small right. percentage that's of books big. used it, it would look like it was more widely used. That's true. Not sure how good that formula is, but no, no, it's you still have, interesting. You have to break it down. <laughs> I also, um, I plugged in, you guys can see the uh, original art for Black God's Kiss on Weird Tales' cover. Margaret Brundage cover. Hmm. And there's a lady kiss, kissing a black god with only one eye. See there? No, I'll have to click on it. Okay. Uh, a Blink of the Screen, Collected Shorter Fiction by Terry Pratchett. Hey, he just died. May he rest in peace. Oh. Very sad. Mr. Jim Moon on the Hypnagoria podcast did a really good uh, show on whenever somebody dies who's, you know, uh, he's a fan of. He does a really detailed show, and I, I've not read a lot of Terry Pratchett, uh, uh, practically anything actually, but um, he really gave me a good lesson in. In you guys probably don't listen to Hypnagoria, but he he's just he's a scholar of the genre, and he's just read so much. So when you read that, it's it's a it's a really good primer for what somebody's about. And uh, he seemed like a really cool guy. Um, so collected shorter fiction. I guess uh, this is Discworld, or is it? Is it? Uh, no, mix? it's just anything. Anything he's written. So the stuff he worked, he wrote before Discworld, even that's short fiction, and then some mm-hmm. short fiction that's related to Discworld. Do you think it's a complete collection? It doesn't uh, really. It just says a collection, so I don't yeah. think it's complete. A blink of the screen, yeah. Uh, we don't have a reviewer for it yet, it says. So. No, my normal Terry Pratchett person didn't volunteer. <laughs> uh, well, you know, collections are rather hard to review. Uh, I don't know how to solve this problem other than. Yeah, you either say, have to, like, review each item separately. I mean, you know, where yeah. you have a really long review. I mean, I prefer that to someone just summary summarizing no, we don't their overall summar- impression. I, that's not useful at all. <laughs> no, no. I follow this uh-uh. one person in Goodreads who she reviews as she goes. Mm-hmm. She reads a lot of short story anthologies, and it's just great. And so if I've read some of the ones that she has, I always go to see what she says about it. Cause she's, we should hire her. I know. Track Maybe I'll down. ask her, actually. Do it. Because um, that's what we want, and you know she can she can do it for good reads and for us. Hey, why not? All right, uh, to toll the hounds. Who's reading the first line of this this book? A Maslan book of the fallen number eight by Stephen Erickson. Uh, okay. Hours. <laughs> yeah, those are chunky books. Forty-four hours. We're only going to give it one sentence. Yep. Um, in, oh, how do you pronounce this word, Jesse? <laughs> Darugistan? Darugistan? In Darugistan, the city of blue, question mark, R-E, it is said that love and death shall arrive dancing. That is deep. <laughs> what yeah. is the question mark, R-E? Is that a font uh, problem? Know. I didn't see that before. Hmm. Here's a sentence from the middle. Hidden hands pluck the strings of tyranny like a fell chorus. <laughs> that sounds nice. Very dramatic. Oh, although you're really you're breaking the rule. 
that we wow. just arbitrarily made up a couple minutes ago. Yeah. But the, the summary is more perky than usual. I got a um, a book that is, kind of reminds me of. I just posted it and uh, really excited about it. Um, have you guys heard of F. Marion Crawford? Mm-hmm. Okay. He's he, he his most famous story is called The Upper Birth, and it's a uh, late nineteenth century, very early twentieth century short story uh, that's kind of set on a ship like the Titanic, um, and it's like a haunted. I don't know, stateroom sort of story. It's super, super famous uh, among, I know, cognoscenti of that sort of, you know, ghost story, early 20th century uh, things. But he, he wrote a bunch of other stuff. And one of the things I've just discovered is this really cool book um, uh, called, uh, where is he? F. Marion Crawford. Oh, yes, it's called Khaled, A Tale of Arabia. And it's a novel, a uh, 262-page novel that is, I think, from 1891. And it's a, a story of a gene, a genie, a gene that uh, wants to become human. Um, and in order to uh, achieve this, he must make a human woman fall in love with him. But the problem is he doesn't have a soul. Uh, it's just a very fun sort of Arabian Nights-esque story but in a novel format um it sounds like it would be really good love i love these really old weird books like that yeah i know you do (laughs) (laughs) as opposed to uh modern i don't know multiple multi-series books we keep going so sandry's book yeah so um Brilliance is re-releasing a lot of the Tamara Pierce series for mm-hmm. juvenile fiction. Have you ever read um, her? I have never read her. Have you guys? Okay. I've definitely heard of her, but haven't yeah. read her. Well, and I was thinking, when did SFF Audio start? 2003. So this very first book may predate SFF Audio in audio. Um, because it wow. first came out in May 2003. Yeah. Okay, so mm-hmm. right after you guys started. Mm-hmm. So this is a Circle of Magic series, and all of them are narrated by the author, and then there's a full cast oh. production. Mm-hmm. So some of them, they say they're up to like 30 author or 30, 30 mm-hmm. actors. Um, so I'm thinking, man, these might be interesting for people with kids or just kids, I guess. Mm-hmm. I will read the description of the first one, and then we can follow with the sentence thing. How about that? Mm-hmm. So the Sounds first good. one is called Sandry's Book. When four strange and strangely talented youngsters are brought to winding circle by Master mm, Mage. Mage. You got it. I don't know magic words. Um, Nico, they find themselves drawn together in a circle of magic, a circle that binds them despite their differences Tamara Pierce, America's most popular writer of young adult fantasy novels, weaves her own special magic in the opening volume of her wildly popular Circle of Magic Quartet. Tammy herself, oh, Tammy, narrates this recording supported by a cast of nearly 30 actors, which is what I already said. I will quit there. May we call you Tammy? Is she really the most popular writer of young adult fantasy novels? Well, here's the thing, right? In 2003, (laughs) maybe more arguable. Yeah. But... Um, I also want to point out that Bruce Colville, um, so this is released by Audible, it says, uh, but, and Brilliance, 
but I think it's actually a production uh, by uh audio group called Full Cast Audio, which it is, is. Yeah. Run by Bruce Colville. Right. And, and so that, Audible bought all those, I think. Right. Okay. So the that Full Cast Audio, we did a lot of reviewing of uh back in 2004 or five-ish, and they are fantastic. They did a whole bunch of uh, Robert Heinlein juveniles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard um, some of those. Those are not series, by the way. Yeah, I have (laughs) to to the Tunnel in the Sky one, and it was I didn't include it on this list because I know we've even reviewed it on Mm -hmm. here before, Um, but it recently got re-released by Audible, too, or by Brilliance. They deserve re-releases because what's so cool about them is that they're like a movie or, a, you know, an audio drama, but there's no sound effects. It's just the text. Um, and so it, it, depending on the way it's written, um, it can be, you know, long narrative or it can be um, very dialogue driven. And it, it's very good. I, I found it to be like it's sort of like the high end uh, audio book. Yeah. I mean, it. Must have cost a lot to have 30 actors. I would guess, yeah. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, they can get it done pretty quickly, I would guess. And there's not a lot of, uh, uh, if everybody knows their lines, there's not a lot of stumbling. Right. Sure. And you don't have to, you know, prepare as much because you're just your own voice. Right. Some narrators, you know, they have to get all the voices for all the characters and try and keep them. And this is a very <laughs> difficult process for a lot of narrators. So I think that that would be a relatively fast way to record an audiobook. They can use par- parallelism. Yeah. 20 different yeah. rooms going at the same time. No, I think they're all in the same room, actually. Okay. But, uh, so Triss's book is Circle of Magic number two, uh, read by the same group. And, uh, here's the first line. Merchant's daughter, Trisna Chandler, is at the center of the second book of Tamaris Pierce's, uh, Tamora Pierce's wildly popular Circle of Magic Quartet, period. Deja's book, Circle of Magic number three, uh, read by the same group. On a journey to Gold Ridge, the four young mages in training, Daja, Sandry, Triss, and Briar, find their ma- their special magics overlapping, sometimes in frighteningly Frightening and destructive ways. Oh my gosh, it's the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Four friends. <laughs> Overlapping magic. <laughs> Somehow the pants fit them all perfectly. <laughs> it's magic. Number four, Briar's book. The stunning conclusion to the Circle of Magic Quartet finds the young mages Sandry, da- Daja, Triss, and Briar facing their greatest challenge yet. A devastating plague that is sweeping across Emmalan. Um, that is also the entire description of mm-hmm. that book. That's what we like. So mm-hmm. the next two, I think we can do the first sentence thing because it's mm-hmm. part of the circle opens, number one and mm-hmm. two, but it's the same mm-hmm. group, the same author, and mm-hmm. the characters are related. So the first one is Magic Steps. Sandraline Fatorin has moved to the palace of her uncle, Duke Fedris, to care for him after his recent heart attack. That's AKA Sandry from Sandry's book. Mm. Oh. Um, and then Street Magic. Briar and Rose Thorn are an ancient chamour where Briar gets involved in a war between street gangs at the same time as he ends up trying to train a young stone mage that he has discovered. Hmm. 
Uh, the Light Princess, George MacDonald. I think that this is not a new book, as in modern. I think it's old, which makes me yeah, think it's, it's cool. Classic. Yeah, um, George MacDonald, didn't he write uh, one of the most famous classics ever? What is it? Um, well, The Light Princess is a Scottish fairy tale by George MacDonald from 1864. Yay! <laughs> oh, that's quite old, okay. yeah. Yeah. Okay. And this is like juvenile, like grades three to five. Hmm. And uh, it says it's read by a full cast, one hour, 43 minutes. It is a well-known fact that a newborn princess will often be the subject to a curse, especially if her royal parents neglect to invite an important magical relative to her christening, or the christening. But never has there been a curse as charming and hilarious as that which befalls the light princess. Deprived of gravity, she can't take anything or anyone seriously. Even worse, she's apt to blow away on the first stiff breeze. Can even a handsome prince bring her down to earth? One of the most acclaimed literary fairy tales of all time, George MacDonald's profound and witty story floats into bubbling new life in this lovingly crafted full cast reading. The Princess and the Goblin is her, his most famous uh, yeah. <laughs> book. That's right. Thank, I knew that. Thank you, Jenny. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that sounds one like a fun awful. story. It totally does, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. With a full cast? It. it sounds almost yeah. like a rolled doll story. You know what? If you if nobody's reviewed that, why don't you send it to me? Okay. I will do it. I can do an hour and 43 minutes, especially if it's by uh, somebody old. I like old people. <laughs> I should hang out in elder care facilities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got Wild that. magic. Um, another Tamora Pierce? How did we end up with another Tamora Pierce? Okay. It's another quartet. All right. An Immortals Quartet, number one, uh, as read by the full cast family, grades five to seven, six hours. The first volume of the Immortals Quartet tells of the adventures of Dane, a young girl who is on the edge of discovering her own magic and her strange connection to the animal world. Period. Oh, so we're doing first sentence. Gotcha. Um, next one is Wolf Speaker. When the wolves of Long Lake call, Dane must use her powerful ability to communicate with animals to save them from an ecological disaster. Mm-hmm. Emperor Mage. Dane enters a glittering world laced with danger and treachery, a world that grows more intense when the gods themselves push her to use her wild magic for their own ends. And it's interesting because that one says grades 7 to 12. Mm, they're growing with the kids. <laughs> yeah. And then the last one is The Realms of the Gods. When a battle with death-dealing skinners catapults Dane and her mentor, Numere, into the divine realms, the riddles of Dane's past finally begin to reveal themselves. So this uh, one is, like, it looks like yeah, magic, gods, and environmental, ecological stuff. So. It's funny, because the, the number th- book number three is for grades 7 to 12, and then book number four is for grades 5 to 7. Yeah, they might just be coded wrong. <laughs> May, <laughs> but but also, it might be that they're completely standalone. Yeah. Um, it's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, when when they're describing Tamara Pierce as, what was it, the most popular, maybe it's for that age set. Mm-hmm. You know, rather well, yeah, than but the, she was before her uh, J.K. Rowling is what I was yeah, laughing about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that's it. But yeah, J.K. Rowling also might uh, not be as popular now. It could be that there was a spike, you know, and that yeah. Tamara Pierce sure. is always more popular. But 
we we are moving on to another series by a different person mid series. I think it's Tam's time. Tam's no. time. Middle of the series, Tammy's just a person. <laughs> uh, the Keeper, Water, Water's Meat Number Three by Ellen Jensen Abbott, read by Georgina Marie. Abbasina Ab- <laughs> is ready to assume the role of Keeper. That has been her destiny, leading the future of the water smeat community, period. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> well, Robot Dreams in the oh. sci- space sci-fi. Space, yay. And uh, mm-hmm. it's going to be read or reviewed by Scott. Yay. And Robot Dreams spans the body of Asimov's fiction from the 1940s to the mid-1980s, features classics as Asimovian themes, uh, from specific scientific puzzle to the extraterrestrial thriller, all introduced in an exclusive essay written especially for this collection. Uh, How is it different than iRobot? Uh, you know, the thing is, is iRobot is not really all of his robot stories. Okay. He has tons of robot stories. He loves robots. Okay. Um, and sometimes it's also hard to tell whether it's a robot story if it if it just has robots in it. So... This is not, re- this is one of those collections that comes after iRobot because he's got lots more, right? Okay. But I've read a, a number of the stories that are in here. Uh, here's the list of stories. Uh, Little Lost Robot, Robot Dreams, Breeds There a Man, Hostess, Sally, Strike, Bra- Strike Breaker, The Machine That Won the War, Eyes Do More Than See, The Martian Way, Franchise, Jokester, or the jokester, it should be. Uh, the last question, does a bee care? Light verse, the feeling of power, and spell my name with an S. Um, There's more on the next page. Oh, is there? Yeah, you're right, the ugly little boy. The billiard ball, uh, true love, the last answer, and lest we remember. Ha, ha, ha. So I'll just point out that there's a couple of stories uh, that are very memorable in here that maybe even you guys have read. If you if you read them in school, you might remember. Uh, the Ugly Little Boy is a story. It also has another title, and it's actually a public domain story. Um, it's about a time machine. Well, it's not really about a time machine. They use a time machine to go back and capture uh, Neanderthal. And they bring him back to the present and uh, raise him in the laboratory to see what uh, Neanderthals are like. And he is the ugly little boy of the story title. And so it's quite powerful in that respect. The Feeling of Power is uh, not one of a number of short stories that um, they teach in school. And it's, it's a story about, uh, I think it's about math. It's set in the future where people don't know how to do math anymore um, because computers do all their math for them. And uh, sounds very contemporary. It, yeah, it is very. It's very. It it's sort of you know whenever we got it, when we got calculators we you know, we stopped having to learn how to do math I guess in a way. But uh, it's set on I think on a on a cruiser and. Their, their battle computer goes down and nobody knows how to calc- make their calculations. And, uh, when one guy knows, you know, figures out how to do it, he has this uh, tremendous feeling of power <laughs> from the ability to do a little bit of math, which is pretty funny. Um, he has a lot of stories like that where 
the interaction between technology and humanity uh, highlights um, what we should focus on as humans. And so it's always good to read Asimov. He's a really clever guy. Uh, the Fortress of uh, Fortress in Orion, a Mike Resnick novel, sounds like. Uh, Christian Rummel's the narrator. And here's a complete description because it's probably the first in a standalone series. I don't know. We'll check it out. Uh, the democracy is at war with the alien Transgay Coalition. War hero Colonel Nathan Pretorius has a record of success on dangerous behind enemy lines missions, missions that usually leave him in the hospital. Now he's recruited for a near impossible assignment that may, may well leave him dead. At the cost of many lives, the democracy has managed to clone and train General Michang, Mitch Kag, Mitch Kag, there you go, one of the Trend Sky's master strategists. Colonel Pretorius and a hand-picked team must kidnap the real Michag, Mitch Kag, if they can, assassinate him if they can't, but no matter which, put the clone in his place where he will misdirect the enemy's forces and funnel vital information to the democracy. Against all odds, Pretorius, along with cyborg Felix Ortega, computer expert Tony Levy, convict and contortionist Sally Snake Kowalski, <laughs> the near-human empath Marlowe, the alien Gustrlix, and Madame Methuselah, the, the dead-enders must... Oh, the, this is the group. The dead-enders must infiltrate the fortress in Orion, accomplish their mission, and escape with their lives. Hmm. You know, uh, I read a whole bunch of series books by Mike Resnick, and I like them. <laughs> I don't like series books, but I, I like the way Mike Resnick writes. He's He's got a... And I think this must be sort of a follow-up to that. It, it's obviously set in a different universe than the one it is, but that uh, Starship series that I, I read by him was, it's just really, he's just really fun to read. There's some writers you just read and you just enjoy reading their stuff. And I think this would be like that. Who's doing Under Different Stars? I'll do this one. Uh, there's Thank actually you. two books in this new series. One came out in February and one's coming out at the end of March. Um, this one's called Under Different Stars by Amy A. Bartle, read by Kate Rudd. There she is again. Uh, mm -hmm. Cricket Hollowell never wished upon stars. She was too busy hiding in plain sight, eluding Chicago's foster care system. Oh, yeah, by the way, YA. <laughs> As her 18th birthday approaches, she now eagerly anticipates the day she'll stop running and finally find her place in the world. So that doesn't sound like sci-fi, but... And what is she even? This is not in space either. Well, I don't know. That, there's stars in the title. Stars in the title. Yeah, hang on. That day comes when she meets a young Aetherian soldier named Trey Alaris, who has been charged with coming to Earth to find Cricket and transport her to her true home. Oh. As danger draws close, he must protect her until she can wield the powers she cannot use on Earth. And he soon realizes that counting a galaxy of stars would be easier than losing this extraordinary girl. Ah, Kion Ensign knows the powerful depths of Cricket's gifts. Gifts he'll control when he takes her for his tribe and leads the forces that will claim Ethar and destroy his enemies, starting with Trey Alaris. 
Now Cricket finds the most difficult choice of her life, whether to wage a battle for survival or a fight for love. Oh. Uh, the the name of that planet, Ethar, it sounds mm. like uh, Earth almost, right? It's, yeah. So it's like, it could be, you know, if this is done right, you could have the the little girl is just deluding herself and she has these dreams about how she's really an alien and that someday a prince is going to come and take her away. Right. Um, it could be very well done. Yeah. Winner of four Utope YA awards. Nice. Yeah. I didn't hear, hadn't heard of that one before. Me neither. Utopia. So Tam, do you want to read the first sentence of the next one? I think I can manage sea that. Sea of stars, <laughs> the cricket series, number two. Not to be confused with the sport. Um, yes, with the camp. Year, yes. 18-year-old Cricket Hollowell was looking for her place in the world when she discovered that the universe was bigger and more dangerous than she had ever dreamed. Well, that's first sentence. <laughs> Old Venus, edited by George R. R. Martin and Gardner Dozois. See, I know how to pronounce that guy's last name. Me too. Dozois. Dozois. Read by read by various, and it's from Random House. Uh, we don't have a reviewer for this again, perhaps because it's a giant collection of short stories or novellas. But um, it sounds like a very cool one. A new anthology of original stories collected by number one New York Times best-selling author George R. R. Martin and multiple award-winning editor Gardner Dozois, and celebrating the classic heart of science fiction. Much as with Old Mars, this original anthology of all-new stories harkens back to the golden age of SF, when science fiction was filled with tales from our own solar system, at a time when no, no one knew what lay on the surface of our nearest galactic neighbors, and speculation ran rampant. And though the old solar system was disproved in the 1960s when space probes showed that real worlds were very different from those of our imaginations, these linked anthologies take us back to the time when it still, still seemed possible that Mars was home to dying civilizations and Venus was a steamy, swampy jungle world with strange creatures lurking amidst the lush vegetation. And there are stories by Alan M. Steele, Lavi Tidar, Paul McCauley, Matthew Hughes, Gwyneth Jones, Joe Haldeman, yay, Stephen Lee, Eleanor Arnenson, David Brin, Garth Nix, Michael Kasut, Tobias S. Bacal, Elizabeth Baer, Joe R. Lansdale, Mike Resnick, and Ian McDonald. Right, so when I first saw this, I thought it was older stories pulled into no, an anthology, yeah. but these are all like brand new stories. Yeah, it's called Old Venus, right? You'd think mm -hmm. these are old Venus stories. Um, you know, S.M. Sterling did a kind of similar thing in a novel form. He did a, uh, a old Mars book and an old Venus book, sort of taking the, the tropes of, of the, basically there was a magazine called Planet Stories, which, um, is a very fun magazine to look through, uh, in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, and every issue, had a story with Mars. Basically, there was a Mars story, maybe a Venus story, maybe two, three Mars stories, um, and almost all of them were set on planets in within our solar system. It was, it was not about uh, you know 
visiting alien civilizations on other galaxies. It's, it was, it was all about alien civilizations within our own solar system. And, uh, so in both those and, uh, these modern ones, it's, it's kind of like, you know, what, uh, the Barsoom books are, the, the Edgar Rice Burroughs books are like, and Burroughs did a, a series set on Venus as well. He didn't just do the Mars, a uh, princess of Mars books and the John Carter books, right? He also did Venus books and. Did you read the Sterling books? No, I, okay. I kind of wanted to, but I never did. Okay. Yeah, I've heard of them too. I haven't read them though. Uh, it, they were very interesting to me because I do like this connection back to the old, the old way of, of thinking about what could be on the nearby neighbors. What, what we could go visit someday. Venus the way it should be. <laughs> yeah. You really don't want to go there now. It's no. not what you think it would be. Wouldn't it be a fun vacation. It would be, first you would burn. No, first you'd be crushed, then you'd, you'd, you'd melt. And then you'd burn. And, oh, and you'd be flattened, too, because its atmosphere is like 99 times denser than ours. It's a downer. It's, and and there's, the, the rain there is acid. It's like literally sulfuric acid rain. <laughs> and you can't see the stars. It's pretty sad. You don't, really don't want to go there. You could cook a pizza there if you're very careful. Okay. Zombies, apocalypse, dystopia, steampunk, horror, grab bag. So Jenny, yeah, how do you get all this? <laughs> Jenny, how did you get all the story titles? Was it where they provided or did you look them up on your own? Yeah, I went and found it. Oh, that's nice of you. It's hard Go to on. talk about them if you don't know what's in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then I just threw everything else that didn't fit into this one category. Oh. Started with the zombies, and then I added steampunk, and then we had some horror books. So uh, the first one is the Skywriters. This is another one sent to us by Mike Allen, but it's co-written by Paul Dellinger. It's a novella narrated by Robert G. Davis. Alistair Jones is an ex-Pinkerton agent roaming the West in search of work. Amy Dunstan is an angry widow searching for answers. Who knows what those men with matching mustaches and bowler hats are searching for? Mm. But Alistair and Amy would like we both like to know why there are so many of them, why they all look alike, and why they're impervious to bullets. Mm. At least until they meet the business end of Alistair's 52 caliber 1874 pattern sharps rifle. It could take down a buffalo with one shot, and it worked on those bowlers, too. But Alistair's gun and Amy's quick thinking might not be enough. Scientist Hiram Wilson, Hiram Wilson's newfangled solar and steam-powered airship, has brought an army of those bowler-wearing varmints out of the woodwork. And destroying Harem's invention is just the beginning of their terrifying plan for our planet. That sounds fun. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know how to say Hiram, Hiram. Oh, I, th- I think you did well. It's got airship, so Jesse will like it. I, I, I just did a couple of uh, 1910 stories about, not did, I processed a couple of PDFs uh, about a real airship called the Airship America, which had a lot of trouble getting it kept trying to go across the Atlantic and then they tried to go to the North Pole and yeah they had a lot of trouble but it is definitely cool and Pinkertons are are kind of hot right now even though they're you know 100 years old um there's a there's a television show which I've not been able to track down uh called The Pinkertons 
that's airing at maybe in syndication or something. So, Pinkertons are hot. I'm not familiar. You guys know about the Pinkertons? I haven't heard of that show. Is that American? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a, I think it's filmed in Canada, but oh. I think it's set in the States. Um, almost everything is filmed in Canada now in that sort of genre. Um, you, you know, Jenny, do you know what Pinkertons are? Nope. They're like, um, they're like a sort of a Blackwater, uh, mercenary sort of private detective agency in the United States, uh, in the 19th century used by like, um, you know, William Randolph Hearst sort of guys to roust people off their land and, you know, the government would put out contracts on, you know, criminals and they'd go hunt them down. It's very interesting because it's, it's like a, you know, private detective agency, but they're more like an army because they have a lot of guys. Hmm. It's private security sort of. And so that's why, you know, the, they, they all would sort of dress alike. They'd have mustaches and hats. But in this case, they're, it sounds like they're clones or robots or something. All right. Islands of Rage and Hope. Black Tide Rising number three. That means it only gets the one sentence. And here it is. Uh, this is by John Ringo, read by Tristan Morris. A hardened group of survivors fight back against a zombie plague that has brought down civilization. Mm-hmm. Firefight, a YA, Reckoners number two, by Brandon Sanderson. Uh, read by McLeod Andrews uh, for grades seven to nine. And here's the one line description. <laughs> New, New Kago is free. Oh. All right. Now, this one is, uh, this next one's a new release. Uh, we haven't received it, but I just couldn't <laughs> not add it to the list because I thought it, it was. It doesn't sound awesome. very interesting. It sounds awesome. The <laughs> utterly uninteresting and unadventurous tales of Fred, the vampire accountant. <laughs> by Drew Hayes, read by Kirby Hayborn. It's running just seven hours. It's uh, produced by Tantor, but is available on Downpour as well. And here's the description. Some people are boring. Some live boring. Some even die boring. Fred managed to do all three. And when he woke up as a vampire, he did so as a boring one. Timid, socially awkward, and plagued by self-esteem issues, Fred has never been the adventurous sort. One fateful night, different from the night he died, which was more inconvenient than fateful, Fred reconnects with an old friend at his high school reunion. This rekindled relationship sets off a chain of events thrusting him right into the chaos of the para-human world, a world with chipper zombies, truck-driving wereponies, <laughs> mechanical necromancers, ancient dragons, and now one undead accountant trying his best to survive. Because even after it's over, life can still be down, be a downright bloody mess. Doesn't that sound fun? What's a chipper zombie? Uh, happy? Oh. Always look on the bright side of death. <laughs> or do they chip trees? Sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah, it does sound like fun. Uh, I'll do the next one because I Thank actually you. had a review copy of the print, so I have some things to say. Oh, it's uh, yeah. The Mechanical. It's a new, I think, trilogy by Ian Tregellis of the Bitter Seeds trilogy right. um, called The Alchemy Wars, narrated by Chris Kaiser uh, from Hatchet Audio. This one comes in about almost 16 hours. The Clacker, 
a mechanical man endowed with great strength and boundless stamina, but beholden to the wishes of its human masters. Soon after the Dutch scientist and clockmaker Christian Huygens invented the very first clacker in the 17th century, the Netherlands built a whole mechanical army. It wasn't long before a legion of clockwork fusiliers, I don't know how to say that either, marched on Westminster, and the Netherlands became the world's sole superpower. Three centuries later, it still is. Only the French still fiercely defend their belief in universal human rights for all men, flesh and brass alike. After decades of warfare, the Dutch and French have reached a tenuous ceasefire in a conflict that has ravaged North America. But one audacious clacker, Jax, can no longer bear the bonds of his slavery. He will make a bid for freedom, and the consequences of his escape will shake the very foundations of the brasswork throne. Hmm. So I started reading this in print. I didn't finish it, but it's more just because, like, I could I could see how some people would really enjoy it, just not for me kind of thing. Mm. You know, mm. sounds like clockwork. Um, yeah, yeah, it is very much. And I didn't realize it was several centuries in the future because it feels very much like that 17th century feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, the jack the the clackers. If they disobey, they get publicly punished. And so, you know, there's that whole like village um, spectacle feeling of the 17th, 18th century still going on. So if this is in the future, wow, society is still very much the same because the clackers, um, since they're slaves, basically, they're doing all of the um, food growing and just all the all the menial jobs. Mm. Um, it but, sounds like it's going to pay off in a later book, right? Like there's going to be a revolution by the robots or something. Yeah, the the interesting part, and the character of Jax is really interesting because he's thinking for himself. So he's not completely mechanical. And if you disobey, it's um, it comes with pain. So mm-hmm. he's, you know, intentionally causing pain to himself to do what he does. So that, you know, there's a lot of interesting concepts and ideas in there, and it feels very historical. Um, Fuse the Lears, by the way. It's, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Got it right, yeah. It's like, oh, um, and okay. Christian Huygens is a real guy. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah, he was like a astronomer and mathematician. Um, he was one of the dudes who was studying the rings of Saturn, the moons of Titan, the pendulum clock was one of his things, and... Uh, he was he was like big into optics and physics and um pretty famous dude. Yeah, and because the author sets it with so many of those details, it feels like something that really happened. Only of course mm-hmm. there are no clackers. So yeah, yeah it's alternate kind of fun. history. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's cool. I'll take the next one too because I also I read a review copy of this one too. Um okay. it's a new post apocalyptic series called Fire Sermon and the title of this book is also Fire Sermon by Francesca Haig. Narrated mm. by Lauren Fortgang. Uh, it's about 12 hours. 400 years in the future, the Earth has turned primitive following a nuclear fire that laid waste to civilization and nature. Though the radiation fallout has ended, for some unknowable reason, every person is born with a twin. Of each pair, one is an alpha, physically perfect in every way, and the other an omega, burdened with deformity, small or large. So what this description doesn't say and what makes the book more interesting is that if your twin dies, you die. Mm, The Corsican brothers. Yeah. And so all the omegas are, you know, if they're 
if their twin is someone important in power, they're often imprisoned so that they're kept safe. Um, it, it's an interesting society. I, the only thing I would say about it is it's um, there's a little bit too much convenience, like for some unknowable reason, <laughs> you know, every person's born with a twin. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess because there's no science involved in it, it's kind of like, well, well, okay, that is very convenient, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe that gets explained later. It certainly doesn't get explained in the first book. Well, based on just the title alone, it sounds like there's some godly wrath going on, don't you think? Fire sermon. Well, it's always interesting to see who takes control of the society. Mm-hmm. And people YA. live in different groups. I, I, I don't really know if it's why it doesn't, I mean, it's why friendly, I guess I would say, but. It, it didn't really market itself that way, I don't think. Um, it but like it's interesting because the alphas, of course, get the best stuff. And um, there's a similarity here to uh, this perfect day, but that kind of gives something away. Mm. So, mm. Uh, yeah. That's it's nice. Interesting. Uh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> so did you finish this one, did you say? I did. I did finish that one, yeah. Okay. Um, maybe that's a read the Goodreads review on that one. Mm-hmm. I assume you good read it. Of course. All right. Um, the I mentioned the Corsican brothers. That's I what I would sort it back to. That's a uh, Alexander Dumas. Oh, okay. Uh, novella. It's um, many times adapted to film. Most famously, uh, I think um, the Cheech and Chong version. Have you guys seen that? I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the the idea is that, you know, when one feels pain, the other feels pain. Um, I saw that I was high, so I don't remember it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a Cheech and Chong movie, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it, it sort of establishes, you know, it should be almost a comedy hmm. in, the, in that respect. But it's, it's a nice, nicely metaphorical, too. Well, and I guess I'll say one more thing. The main character in this is a woman who she has one of the hidden deformities. Mm. Um, she can, it's kind of like a psychic um, future telling ability. And so she and her brother, they weren't separated as early as the other twins were. Um, and that caused some problems for both of them in their society, you know, because splitting between alpha and omega early on allows for that social order to fall into place the way it's supposed to be. So, you know, not to do that was kind of a mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anomaly, I guess. So anyway, it, it makes for an interesting part of the society, but we can move on. All right. Um, well, the next be, one is have decent if you finished it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, next one is uh, by Charles Beaumont. It's a novel. Um, Tam, you're familiar with Charles Beaumont. I think we probably mentioned him several times on the podcast in the past. He's he's most famous for working on uh, the old original Twilight Zone series um, and also as a writer in his own right. And um, this novel is called The Intruder. I've not heard of it before, but I thought, oh, my God, a new Charles Beaumont audiobook. Got to check it out. So it's read by uh, Stefan Rudnicki. It's 10.4 hours long, and here's the description. A fascinating portrait of mid-1950s America by the iconic Charles Beaumont. 
And that doesn't make it sound like it's a uh, horror book, but listen up. He was a leader of men, but he was evil. He was a stranger, but he brought lust and love, rape and hate to this quiet southern town. He was the intruder. It was a sleepy southern town with nice folks and good schools. Then the intruder arrived from the north. With him came trouble, fear, and hate, so vicious it could turn neighbor against neighbor, child against child, white against black, and destroy them all. Mm. Isn't that, it sounds very metaphorical. From 1959. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, it could be, uh, really enjoyable. I, I really like, Beaumont has this sort of a community, uh, sense of, Talking about, you know, his fiction is about community, which is interesting, I think, because that's not usually, you know, what authors tackle. Um, there's also a collection. I, I think you, and did you put it right below? Let's see. Yeah, The Hunger and Other Stories. Um, this is a collection by Beaumont of short stories, um, read by Paul, uh, J. J. Paul Bomer, Gabriel Decker, and Stefan Renicki. It's eight hours long. And here's the description. When The Hunger and Other Stories first appeared in 1957, it heralded the arrival of Charles Beaumont as the most important and highly original new voice in American fiction. Although he is best known today for his scripts for television and film, including several classic episodes of The Twilight Zone, Beaumont is being rediscovered as a master of weird tales. And this, his first published collection, contains some of his best, ranging in tone from the chillingly gothic horror of Miss Gentibel, where an insane mother dresses her son up as a girl and slaughters his pets, to deliciously dark humor tales like Open House and The Infernal Bouliabes, where murderers' plans go disastrously awry. These 17 stories demonstrate Charles Beaumont's remarkable talent and versatility. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. And what's next? Oh, Untouched by Human Hands? So exciting. Tam, do you remember we did a show, just you and me, I think, on that story? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It also it has another name, um, which uh, is called, mm, I can't remember, but it's, it's set uh, on an alien planet the, the, on the top of a mountain spire in which uh, a building has been built around a spire, uh, a spike uh, on this spiky planet, and it's a cargo uh, holding facility. The, the couple of prospectors are coming through space, and they, they forgot to pack any food for some reason, because they're space prospectors, and it's a comedy. And so they're getting really, really hungry, and they land on this uh, alien planet and discover this uh, this storage facility and it's all alien and they can't tell uh oh it's called one man's poison is the other title um and uh and they land on this planet they open up the building they go inside and they found endless where it's a warehouse full of endless alien objects and they're looking for food and they go around trying to find things and they they have a universal translator but it doesn't help them very much because everything's written uh, you know, like Coke is it? Well, what is Coke? <laughs> you know, sort of like that. And so they keep trying different things and trying not to get poisoned. It's a really hilarious story. 
I guess you could just go back and listen to the podcast. In any case, wow. Untouched by Human Hands is also the name of this collection. Uh, read by Gabriel Decur, Harlan Ellison, and Stefan Rednicki. It's 5.7 hours. And here's the description. Untouched by Human Hands consists of 13 stories of beings who dwell on the strange borders of reality. Some of these stories tell of people you know or of events that might happen, but haven't yet. Some will take you to the furthermost reaches of the sky and to planets whose names are unknown on this side of Arcturus. And some, perhaps the richest and most memorable of these stories, open into the interior of strange minds to reveal the reflection of ourselves. And this classic collection consists of the following short stories. The Monsters, Cost, cost of Living, The Altar, Shape, the Impacted Man, untouched, with, uh, untouched by Human Hands, The King's Wishes, Warm the Demons, and Seventh Victim, Ritual, and Besides Still Waters. We've also done Besides Still Waters as a show. Um, and Seventh Victim is fabulous. Cost of Living is good. The Altar is a hilariously scary story. Um, this is a really good collection, methinks. And I, I want to hear Harlan Ellison do some of those. That would be really cool. Definitely. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. Do you want me okay, to Okay, somebody should one? do the next one. Yeah, I'm getting tired. Did you go through and just find all the Stefan Rudnicki stuff? <laughs> he has really good taste. You know, he was an editor uh, as well. You know, he put together his own collections of stuff. So he knows what... He's not just a narrator. He's also a collector. Right. And yeah. So he's back again in this next one, which yeah. is Fury by Henry Kuttner. Um, introduction by C.L. Moore, who we've already talked mm-hmm. about. Read by they Stephane. were married, by the way. Ah, read. Okay. Read by Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure from Skyboat Media. Beneath the rolling seas and deadly atmosphere of Venus are the keeps, fully enclosed cities that house descendants of the survivors who first harbored atomic energy to escape a dying Earth. In massive superstructures built beneath the Venusian seas, a complex feudal society devoted simply to decadence has evolved. Presiding over that society are immortals, genetic throwbacks to the mutant atomic survivors. While the society is stable, the stability will only lead to its destruction, and the harsh environment outside the keeps is malevolent and encroaching. Born into it all is Sam Harker, son of an immortal and the object of his father's disdain after his mother perished during childbirth. Apparently, she was not the immortal. Mm-hmm. Sam is subjected to treatments which stunt his growth and leave him hairless, and he is exiled from the society of the immortals and set on the tumultuous path of a rebel's life, one inspired by hatred and a desire for vengeance on the society. Sam's search for revenge and his great abilities make him more powerful than the more decadent residents of the Keeps, and perhaps even more powerful than the immortals themselves. He seeks mass appeal as a politician in a campaign that assaults society. It is not until everything is destroyed, that is, in the aftermath of destruction, that the reclamation of human destiny is even a remote possibility. Mm. It's very alien, right? Yeah. Very alien. It's deep in the atmosphere of the rolling seas of Venus. Hmm. This is old Venus again. It's old Venus, yeah. It says it was copyright 47, so... Uh, Street and Smith is probably an astounding 1947. Yeah, cool. Which tells you it's it's going to be hardish science fiction set on uh, alien world, probably with little psychics thrown in, psychic stuff. They love that stuff. All uh, right, 
classics and literary. I, I predict George R. R. Martin will have a psychic anthology in the future. What happened to classics and literary? They already came out in Audible. I deleted them. Ah, okay. <laughs> Related nonfiction. Yeah, well, I'm mentioning this even though this already came out in Audible because um, of the recent movie, but Alan mm. Turing, The Enigma, um, based. this is what the this movie was based on. Oh, it's a biography okay. by Andrew Hodges, read by Gordon Griffin. Um, oh, and I didn't list how many hours. This one's really long. <laughs> mm. But this is considered one of the essential 50 books of all time by The Guardian. And mm. it's, you know, I don't need to read the whole description. It's about Alan Turing's life and his... Um, contribution to computer and artificial intelligence and code breaking and um, this also the story of being persecuted by because of being a homosexual in the UK and because of their very strict and awful laws they had at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's I, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie, but not yet. No, a good I've seen book is even better. Other adaptations of his life on film. Mm-hmm. So the movie's based on this book. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and you know, turning a biography into a two-hour movie is probably no small feat. No. Um, so no. I've heard a lot of you know, kind of criticism about what they left out, but you have to leave some things out. Clearly. Yeah, miniseries might be able to do more, but yeah, it's it's critically acclaimed for the acting, if nothing else. And it looked, I mean, the trailer look makes it look pretty slick. Yeah, and they focus on the code-breaking portion yeah. of his life mostly. Yeah, he has a really uh, scary end. I tell a story in class about uh, symbols. Um, you know, the Apple logo. Maybe I talked about this before with you guys. The Apple logo is an apple with a bite taken out of it, right? Right. Um, his method of suicide, Alan Turing's, was to put an apple in uh soca apple with... Um, cyanide and eat uh, the poisoned apple and uh that was his method of suicide apparently because his his favorite movie was snow white which is funny um and i say that's why the apple logo is that and that's it's not a true that's not true but it's it seems like it would make sense because you know he's computer he's guy basically invents computers yeah and that's weird. It's, I've never heard it's of a nice, before. It's a nice sort of weird connection, but probably has nothing to do with it. Apples are symbols of knowledge, right? So um, he definitely took a bite from the symbol of knowledge and got poisoned by it. Awful. Yeah. And the movie does portray that part of like... Does it? How awful the um, chemical oh, yeah, castration they're... treatments were. Yeah. 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 People are horrible. Yeah. Important story, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, it's been adapted to film a couple other times, uh, or plays and stuff. Yeah, and so, I've also seen the um, Bletchley, Bletchley Circle, Circle miniseries. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a miniseries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About the women who are involved in the same, the same place. It's interesting. Yeah, it wasn't just him. I mean, there's a lot of people working there, but he he was definitely uh, a heavy hitter. Yeah. Um. um there's another guy named Flowers there who also should get a lot of credit, but he's, he, his story isn't quite as dramatic, I guess. Yeah. Uh, the Interstellar Age by Jim Bell, read by the author. Wow, that's unusual. Kind of fun, though. Um, Scott's going to review this. It's seven hours. 
And it's the story of men and women who drove the Voyager spacecraft mission, told by a scientist who was there from the beginning. The Voyager spacecraft are our farthest flung emissaries, 11.3 billion miles away from the crew who built and still operate them decades after their launch. Voyager 1 left the solar system in 2012, and its sister craft, Voyager 2, will do so in 2015. The fantastic journey began in 1977, before the first episode of Cosmos aired. The mission was planned as a grand tour beyond the moon, beyond Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, and maybe into interstellar space. The fact that it actually happened makes makes this humanity's greatest space mission. In the interstellar age, award-winning planetary scientist Jim Bell reveals what drove and continues to drive the members of this extraordinary team, including Ed Stone, Voyager's chief scientist and the one-time head of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Charlie Colhays, an orbital dynamics engineer who helped to design many of the critical slingshot maneuvers around the planets that enabled the Voyagers to travel so far, and the geologists whose earthbound experiences would prove of little help in inter- Interpreting, interpreting the strange new landscapes revealed in the Voyager's astoundingly clear images of moons and planets. Speeding through space at mind-bending 11 miles a second, Voyager 1 is now beyond our solar system's planets. It carries with it artifacts of human civilization. By the time Voyager 1 passes its first star in about 40,000 years, the gold record on the spacecraft containing various music and images, including Chuck Berry's, Johnny Be Good will still be playable. Hmm. Um, so, uh, you guys know about the slingshot maneuvers things? That's really cool. Is it you using know, gravity or something? Yeah. Well, I saw it on uh, yeah. Star Trek. Yeah, well, they, there they use it to go back in time. Not really possible. But um, this is the cool thing is like, you know, when you go into outer space, you need to go. Uh, different directions, right? Well, the easiest way to change directions is to go, uh, go grab onto something. And by pointing yourself at a, a gravity well, like a planet, you can increase your speed, you know, when you're thrusting towards it. And then when you get in close to it, you can actually steal some of its energy and give that energy to yourself to go to the next source. So the way to think about it is like, imagine the three of us are running in a foot race, right? And we're all running side by side. And then Jenny gets a little bit ahead of me. She's getting a burst of speed. Well, I start running at her and I grab onto her belt and pull her back and sort of thrust myself forward by her belt, right? And she gets thrown back. She loses some energy that she's she's gained some momentum, and I stolen it. Then I see Tam ahead of me, and I grab onto his belt and pull him back and throw him back a little bit. And now I've got both of your energies. Now just imagine I'm on a skateboard. <laughs> I would get a lot more energy, right? That's basically how slingshot maneuvers work. And as they go around different planets as they approach different planets. They can get more and more energy from those planets. It's actually slowing down the planet in its orbit, but it's so minuscule because, you know, the, the, the object, the, 
the uh, space probe in this case is such a tiny fraction of the mass of a planet that it doesn't it's imperceptible to us the you know the the planet's not going to suddenly slow down and fall out of its orbit but it is actually stealing energy from it so if you did this enough times it'd be like uh global warming you know it could cause if if we had too many objects flying around the solar system stealing energy we our planets would start to slow down in their orbits and we'd have problems but i just think it's such a cool thing that they figured out this is a physics problem and they used it to get us out of the solar system something that we really have never done yeah you know voyager one is i mean it says there you know it is the most extraordinary um you know human achievement and there's good argument for that i mean it's even beyond the moon is it's a pretty good argument because that is amazing so yeah i'm looking forward to scott's review on this I just have a and question. Like, it's only seven hours. Sorry? Well, it, do we use the word drove for space missions? The story of the men and women who drove the Voyager spacecraft. It wouldn't it be flew or? Well, they steered it, maybe. <laughs> Navigate. Yeah, drive, driving is a metaphor for, uh, for cows, actually, right? You drive, you drive a horse when it's on a cart in front of you. Yeah, or a car, but maybe, I don't maybe know. Maybe they had a little remote steering wheel and they were turning it. <laughs> Well, it's, yeah, it's a metaphor. All right, we have one left. Just kind of related okay. title. The Sagas of Ragnar Lodbrok. Mm-hmm. Translated from the Old Norse by Ben Wagner. Read by Ray Chase for about three hours from Blackstone. Mm-hmm. So why did you include this one, Jesse? Uh, Ragnar Lodbrok or Lothbrok. <laughs> um, this is the Vikings series, you know, that Vikings television series I've told you about a couple of times and you keep saying you want to see because you're a Viking. Yeah, I saw it. I saw some of it. OK, so Ragnar Lodbrok was a real ish person. He's in the Viking sagas and these are them. Um, he he was one of the guys to invade England. Um, he went into Paris. He sacked Paris. He was all over the place, and he has all sorts of weird stories about him. You know, he's got a son named Ivar the Boneless, <laughs> who may have had a birth defect, but still managed to become a great Viking warrior. Uh, might not have any bones, but still a great Viking warrior. That's awesome. Um, his name, uh, Ragnar Lodbrok, is also associated with Ragnar Hairy Breeches, which means hairy pants or <laughs> hairy legs. Um, and he's, he's just, he's an awesome figure in the Viking sagas. Um, uh, the television show is interesting because it, it is trying to sort of weave a fine line between all the saga impossibilities and our sort of reality. Yeah. You know, one of the things I learned in my year of reading Iceland Mm-hmm. Is that I always thought sagas were just, you know, like epic poems or mythological things, but they they're treated like history in those countries. They are s- semi true. I mean, uh, there's a basis for th- them. You know, he's more he's more real than Arthur, King Arthur, but he's not as real as you know Churchill. Um, the epic of Churchill, if it is ever told will probably include some stuff other than speeches. But 
there's there's a fine you know it's 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 kind of it would be very hard to do a Viking saga as a television series if you included every element because a lot of it is so fantastical that you would say it's it's a pure fantasy series. Um, in the latest couple episodes, they had uh, uh, three of the women characters had the uh, identical dreams about a man coming out of the wilderness. One hand he's holding ice, and the other hand is dripping blood, steaming blood. And then that happens. This guy shows up, and one of them comes up to him and says, "Are you a god?" And he tells a story about how he met Thor, <laughs> right? Is he a god or is he Thor? And then later on, somebody dies and they say, she's, she's, she's gone crazy. Um, she sees something weird. The guy turns into a woman. And I was like, hey, is that Freya? Like, is this Freya in male form walking around doing this? And I just love that aspect of, you know, trying to get close as we can to depicting what these weird people believed because... They were really weird, these people, right? They're like Klingons, but they're also uh, real. And they had a, their own belief system, and it drove them to do all sorts of weird things. And yet, there are humans as, just as we are. So how do we connect to them? And I, I, I think that watching a show like that, like a couple seasons ago, they, they did the Blood Eagle, and I was like, this is horrible, but it, it's in the sagas. They talk about it a lot yeah right so and vikings are able to survive in like the worst possible situations climate wise Mm -hmm. well they didn't survive in they didn't survive in greenland but they they did pretty they didn't you know they didn't keep going in north america but they did um they did make attempts everywhere and um there was just a story i i tweeted it to scott um uh an arabic ring a uh, ring with Arabic written on it was found in a Viking grave, right? Um, they were all over the place. We were talking, uh, I was talking to Scott uh, on the Beowulf podcast uh, about, uh, you know, how far down the Vikings went. You know, they went into Russia. They conquered Russia. Um, they went, to, you know, to uh, England and Ireland. They conquered there too. They went to Normandy and they took France and became Normans, right? And then, but they were down in uh, Byzantium, in I- Istanbul. And obviously they were trading with, uh, or at least, you know, meeting up occasionally with people who had uh, in the Arab world. And that's not that surprising considering they were everywhere. There's, they don't have an empire because they're all, you know, separate. But they're definitely up in everybody's business. And the, you know, great seaworthy navigating Mm-hmm. culture so of course it would make sense that they'd been all those places mm-hmm. it's very cool so uh, you know not having an actual history of them the sagas are as close as we can get so right because I, well, that's their oral history it is their and then at some point it was written down right and so uh this this uh description i'll read and then uh, i think that'll be our show uh although based on historical persons from the ninth century Ragnar Lodbrok and his sons are the subjects of comp- compelling legends dating back, dating from the Viking era. Warriors, raiders, and rulers, Ragnar and his sons inspired unknown writers to set down their stories over seven centuries ago. This volume presents new and original translations of the three major Old Norse texts that tell Ragnar's story. The Sagar, 
the saga of Ragnar Lodbrok, the tale of Ragnar's sons, and the Sulgubrut, Sulgubrut, the Ragnar's, Ragnar's death song, the Krakanal, completes this story. Extensive notes and commentary are provided, helping the listeners enter the world of these timeless stories of Viking adventure. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. You know, I just finished reading a historical novel about um, Lady Godiva mm. called Naked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was reading the author notes at the end, and I always, I guess I always just thought of her as one of these types of characters, too, you know, not really mm-hmm. existing, but apparently she's documented. She's documented as a landowner and a taxpayer who kept her land through the Viking invasions. Well, they called yeah. them the Danes back then. And mm-hmm. through the Norman invasions. So she wow. maintained her area, her Coventry, Middle England lands, even through two huge invasions. Well, the the Vikings, uh, those Norsemen, were very uh, respectful of their women. Um, they, they, you know, they their women were warriors as well. And they, you know, if the women didn't want to do something, then it wasn't going to happen. Right. And same with the Anglo-Saxons, which is what Lady Godiva was. That's women, right. Women could be heirs and landowners, which in that time, very rare. Yeah, it's it's sort of the uh, Christianization brought the sort of the Latin um, uh, disrespect for women in law. Yeah. And then it would take a couple, another century, no, another thousand years for women to get the vote back and Not that everybody got the vote back then, but at least they had a voice. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. I have to be at work in an hour and I haven't showered yet.